0: all right everybody bring it in another edition of the read option coming to you on a tuesday uh we're sticking to the schedule staying strict need to Uh, we're all about clock integrity schedule integrity date integrity and all that is a shout out for my man uh, brock Hewitt, who is the king of audio entertainment clock management um got a great show for y'all today we're going back to the sports gumbo bin uh, going back to the pot as it were because there's just there's a lot going on in the sports world uh some of which we're not even going to be able to really get to um you get everything from football trades uh, a ridiculous celebrity boxing match uh, the women's college world series which has been electric nba playoffs in full swing Uh, and some drama on the golf course and that's not even getting into the french open nhl playoffs which have been absolutely electric so we got a lot of stuff to get into and i thought you know what it'd be best we just chop this bad boy a few ingredients making ourselves a little bit of sports gumbo uh, and we're gonna have a great great show Um, i want to kind of open the show before we get into some of the sports stuff though you know, I, I was fortunate enough this past weekend, made my way down, watched some single A baseball. And it was the first sporting event I've been to in like a year and a half, uh, almost two years. I think it was summer of, of 2019, like August, September of 2019 was the last time I was at a sporting event and it was, it was weird. It was weird. And I I went down to the Fredericksburg Nats, the Freddie Nats, as they're called single a affiliate of the Washington nationals, brand new ballpark. This is the first year they opened up. Uh, It was a, it was a great little ballpark. Um, Got to meet up with a, with an old family friend, fan of our program, Ryan Kakaiko, his brother, Nick. Um, And we, we had a great time. We, we, honestly, we had a ton of fun. It was great getting to, you know, just go down and, and, watch sports you know it, it was bizarre and I got a little shit for this but you know when you're at a baseball game you get the seventh inning stretch and they play take me out to the ball game and baseball will always hold a very special place in my heart I, I don't follow the MLB like I once did um, you know I've become such a big NBA fan and obviously the NFL that I just haven't really gotten a chance to I- explore that that realm Um, as much, let me say that I didn't have a chance to, I've just been choosing not to and sitting there at a ballpark standing while the take me out to the ball game came on. Like it gave me chills. Like I got goosebumps sitting there while the whole stadium of only about 4,500 people or so are singing this song together in unison. And I got chills because what this last year has, has done, it's almost it's almost become a little bit like Stockholm syndrome, you know, where like we all kind of got so used to life in this sheltered box, whether it was quarantining or just staying socially distant. And this, this event was full capacity. It it was, you know, you had people sitting behind you, people sitting next to you, you know, not as much elbow room as, as maybe you would hope for, but it was a, it was a special moment. And I almost forgot what it was like to be in that environment. Not, not almost. I did. I completely forgot what it was like to be in that environment. So, um, is it the most masculine thing I've ever done? Getting, getting chills and, and emotional about "Take Me Out to the Ball Game." No, of course not. But you know, baseball will always hold a special place in my heart. And being there in that environment was just spectacular. It, it was just I, I couldn't have possibly asked for for a more cool kind of feeling especially after you know here we are month 15 uh, of a pandemic that is slowly but surely uh, starting to come to an end and, and the world will start to feel a little bit normal which is great um, but yeah I just wanted to open up and kind of tell that story because it's just this last year has just been so bizarre and and we really on so many levels have forgotten what it's like you know we've forgotten what it's like to to, to be in a crowd to to have those simple life pleasures, you know, the simple things that make being human, human. And, um, now that people are getting vaccinated, it's, it's amazing to see it. And, and that's actually a perfect transition to how I'm going to start off the show today, because, uh, John Rahm, I'm not sure how many people were locked into the men's golf We had the memorial tournament this weekend, which is one of Jack Nicholas's tournaments. And, it's one that Tigers dominated for years. It's, it's a really great venue. It's a beautiful golf course. And John Rahm was six strokes up on Saturday. He had a six-shot lead over second place. He was like minus 18, basically coming out and playing the round, uh, the tournament of his life. Uh, and, and John Rahm's been one of the best players on tour for, for a long time now. But it turns out that as he gets to the 18th green, he's finishing up this incredible round. He's met by PGA officials. Who informed him that he tested positive for COVID, and John Rom hadn't been vaccinated. Uh, he had been in close contact with somebody and reported it to the PGA, which is their protocol. And the whole situation is just completely unfortunate. It's just a sh- it's a shit sandwich, man. It sucks, and John Rom had to eat it, you know. And and we don't want anybody to be kind of put in these situations anymore. But the reality is, is even though as the world is opening up. And we do have fans back, and we do have a sports world again. Um, COVID is still around. COVID still exists. And apparently John Rahm went and got his first vaccine after he found out that he had come into close contact with somebody, which is pretty hilarious because what did he think? Like he, he came into close contact. It's the first vaccine. You need two doses and it's going to take you at least a month and a half in total to become fully vaccinated. So what did he think was going to happen? You know, like what, what did he think was going to be the outcome of this? Uh, But the whole thing does suck. Um, And there's been a lot of heat thrown at the PGA tour, which the PGA tour is very similar to the NCAA in that anytime someone can take a shot at them, and quote-unquote old man golf, they, they are relentless. And I've had a hard time kind of faulting the NCAA, or sorry, the PGA for this Freudian slip, because what was the right way to do it? You know, if, because they criticized them for, for going up and meeting him on the 18th green. Like he was basically on the fringe still. And, my response is, is, all right, he's the leader, and he's going to come in as the leader in the clubhouse, up six strokes, playing unbelievable golf. Every single fan that's there is going to want to fist bump him, high-five him, high. you know, being way too close contact for somebody who just tested positive for COVID. And that's a whole other set of potential liability and, and criticism that would have been levied because if they had let him do all that, you know, what, what would have been the move, you know, could they have gone up to him and said, hey, you know, Mr. Ram, we need you to come with us like socially distant, you know, like, how, how do you even have because then he's gonna say why And you're like, oh, we'll, we'll tell you inside. He's gonna be like, no, like, fucking tell me what, what's going on. Um, and I just have a hard time completely blaming the PGA tour for how this was handled, because. I don't know if there was a better alternative. You know, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. He could have – they could have let him walk to the clubhouse and interact with people in the clubhouse and signed his sheet, and he could have touched 50 people in that walk from the 18th to the clubhouse. Uh, but at the same time, you're, you're kind of having you're, – you're having this guy have a very emotional moment right on the 18th green, surrounded by hundreds of fans and being broadcast on, on national TV. So I don't know if there was a right way to go about it from the John Ron perspective of it, he was clearly emotional. He broke down. He was crying. Uh, and understandably so, because this is a pretty historic, you know, winning one of Jack's tournaments. Like this is one of the premier Jack Nicholas tournaments that we have, if, if not the number one. So I'm not, sh- I'm not sure, you know, the players championship, you have Arnold Palmer um, as kind of the, the figurehead of it. And the memorials is one of Jack's and, John Rahm not only lost a chance to kind of build on his legacy, you know, he's, he's had a very up-and-down year. There's been moments where, you know, he's looked like he's the best player in the world, and there have been moments where it's like he's not even being competitive in majors, and he'll turn it on on Sunday and, and crack the top 10 or top 15. But this was his, like, I'm here moment this season, where it's like I'm back getting ready for the U.S. Open, getting ready for the British open and I'm going to get ready to attack this thing. And unfortunately for him, he was unable to kind of see that through. He was unable to, to actually get a win that I think most people would have won it on top of that too. It's a $1.7 million prize. So we're talking about a guy who lost out in over a million dollars because of a COVID test. And that freaking sucks and it's one of the most bizarre covid stories we've had but it's also a good reminder to say hey even though we are through a major part of this we're not there yet you know we're not fully there and there's going to be a lot of you know covid truthers and everyone out there who are saying that he was robbed he should sue and all these extreme takes and then there are people who want to just completely blame him or a roast and it's I I don't know what to tell you it's just the whole situation sucks it sucks not only for John Rahm not only for the PGA Tour but also for Patrick Cantley who ends up winning on Sunday in a in the first hole playoff because he was tied with Colin, Colin Morikawa how is he supposed to enjoy this you know because in his mind he's like well I didn't didn't earn it I still still finished six shots back of where John Rahm had finished the day before on Saturday, by the time Sunday ended, he was still at minus twelve, so he was still six shots back of where John Rahm was on Saturday. So Cantley's going to get a big chunk of money. Uh, I've I've heard some some thoughts about people saying you know buy him a car, you know buy him something. Uh, I think the most realistic one would be like donate to John Rahm's charity. I, I don't know exactly what it is, or I know there's a foundation that he's. He's helped start. So, you know, donate 200 K or, or donate a, you know, 500,000, however much of the winnings donate that charity, but also for Patrick Cantley, that's, that's money that he technically did win by the letter of the law. So I'm not sure a hundred percent how to, to having a, a hard opinion on this other than it just sucks. It sucks for everybody. It sucks too, for the U S the women's U S open which was this weekend because the Memorial, even though it is a, a pretty big tournament and it's a pretty popular tournament, the Memorial would not have stolen the thunder of the U S women's Op- uh, the U S uh, the women's U S open. Had it not been for this whole situation with COVID, you know, I mean, John Ron would have won by six strokes. People weren't, wouldn't be talking about it. Instead, we'd be talking about a 19 year old winning the U the women's U S open. Uh, and that to me is just it's, – it's a shame because that tournament on Sunday was electric. You had Lexi Thompson leading it pretty much the whole first three days. And then this 19-year-old comes up out of nowhere just grinding hole after hole to win a tournament at, at 19. So uh, it, it's unfortunate because the John Rom news and, and the weirdness of the whole story really kind of took away – uh, at least from golf fans it, it took the attention away from what was one of the top majors and top events in women's golf uh, in addition to how much it sucks for rom how much it sucks for Cantley, Um, it's just there's nothing about this where it's like you can't blame anybody and i think because we're so ready to be done with the pandemic we we want to get back to being able to blame people you know like That's where so much everyone wanted to blame Fauci or Trump or Biden. Like everyone wanted to find somebody to blame instead of just coming to the conclusion of like, look, this pandemic sucks. It's nobody's fault. We just have to kind of suck it up and and, and go through it. Like it's, it's not fun for anyone, but we have to figure out a way to kind of get through it. And unfortunately I don't know if there's a, if there's a clear cut person to blame here. I, I just think it sucks all the way around. Moving on from golf, I uh, want to talk about the big trade that uh, went down over the weekend in the NFL. Uh, one that I think we've been anticipating for a while. You know, I saw some people commenting that you know our, our long national nightmare is over. You know? and, and the Dak thing, I think, is more of that than, than the Julio Jones situation and, and working his way out of Atlanta. But he ends up getting traded to the Tennessee Titans for a second-round pick and a fifth-round pick. Uh, I'm not sure if they've officially announced what the compensation was, but it's the, the, the key piece there being the second-round pick. Julio's on a contract year, so he's probably going to get one more pretty decent-sized contract before he ends up retiring. He's This is the last year of his current deal. Um, but what this means for Tennessee, I, I don't know exactly how much better or worse this is for the Titans because obviously on the offensive end, it's an upgrade, right? you you lose Corey Davis in the off season and Corey Davis is a great, great player. Uh, he, he's, I wouldn't put him in, in the top echelon. He's a solid number two wide receiver who has flashes of why he was a top 10 pick. But Julio Jones is arguably the best wide receiver of the last 12 years. You know, since, since he's been out of Alabama the last decade, I think it, you'd be hard pressed to find a wide receiver over that stretch. Who's been better than Julio. Um, you know, there's always criticisms about his red zone numbers. And it's like, look, when you have a guy like that in the red zone, you're, you're showing him all of your attention. And, but, but at the same time you watch him run routes, he's still one of the best route runners and no, he's not the athletic monster. He was when he first came into the league, but he's still in the top, probably 5% of athletes at the position. I mean, he's still a freak and he's got the experience and. You know, he's kind of an idol to his new teammate, AJ Brown, who would actually went out, warmed up in Julio. One of the games this year went out and was warming up on the field in a Julio Jones Atlanta Falcons jersey. I, I think there's a lot of respect shown to a guy like Julio from his peers. And that's such an, if you're going to judge somebody in their field, in their craft, you know, we can all have our own opinions, but what do his contemporaries, what are his peers? What do the people he goes up against say about him? What do the cornerbacks say? What are the wide receivers say quarterbacks? Like, All three of those, cornerbacks, wide receivers, quarterbacks, what do those guys say about someone like Julio Jones? Because that's going to speak volumes about what he is and and just how valuable he is. Uh, Will he miss some time this year? Yes, probably. Chances are Julio Jones is going to miss not a huge chunk of time, but probably in a 17-game season, probably three or four games that you can pencil him in at this age. And with his injury history, he's probably just not going to be there. Um, But you now have an offense around Ryan Tannehill, where you have a pretty good offensive line. We'll see her Taylor LeJuan looks coming back this year after the ACL tear. Uh, He should be ready for the start of training camp from everything I've read. Um, But what do you make of an offense that has a good O-line, a great, an okay quarterback. I, I I like Ryan Tannehill. I think Tannehill is an above-average quarterback in the NFL. Um, I, if, Kirk Cousins, if Kirk Cousins is the Mendoza line, I would put Tannehill slightly above that because I think what he can do with his legs, his mobility, um, and, and he's done a really good job kind of revamping his career. Now, the big change, you know, yes, you add Julio Jones, but you lost Arthur Smith. You lost your offensive coordinator, the guy who helped build this really good Tennessee offense from the last few years. I'm not 100% sure what the offense is going to look like. But if you look at just the sum of its parts, it makes you think that this is going to be a really good offense. But the problem for Tennessee hasn't been on the offensive side of the ball. They were a top five offense last year. You know, this is a really good team. You still have Derrick Henry, obviously A.J. Brown, Julio now. They signed Josh Reynolds in the offseason, who's going to be a great little slot corner for them. They lost Johnny Smith, and they lost their offensive coordinator. So is it a net gain, net loss? I would say it's probably about even from where they were last year, but it's a new coordinator, and that could completely fuck up everything that they've built there over the last couple of years. But the defense doesn't really look like it's going to be that much better. You know, they lost Malcolm Butler, um, you know, the, who granted like Malcolm Butler wasn't the best cornerback on, on, in the NFL. But they, they lost some pieces in, in the offseason, including like Jadavian Clowney, who know Jadavian Clowney does not put up the stack numbers and therefore people try to devalue him. But he's also he also gets double teamed more than anybody else in the NFL um, at, at that position, and, with the exception of probably Aaron Donald. And it's tough. It's tough when, you're, when you are the centerpiece of an offensive scheme when it comes to protections as, as a defensive rusher. It's going to be hard to put up numbers, but he's a disruptor. He does disrupt. He does wreak havoc along the defensive line. You have, to be a, you have to account for him because he's such a physical freak, and now we're going to see what he can do in Cleveland. I think what we're going to end up seeing, and look, maybe because they've made some changes on their coaching staff outside of just Arthur Smith leaving, I think Vrabel is going to be one of those coaches, especially as a defensive-minded coach, who is not going to let his team have back-to-back bad defensive seasons. What this all will look like, again, we'll find out. But for right now, you know, we'll we'll just have to we'll have to wait and see. Um, with this move, though, it got me thinking as to where where does AJ Brown and Julio Jones, where does that tandem rank? amongst the best wide receiver tandems in football. And so I just jotted some down, kind of like the top five, and you can debate you know, the order here. But I have Julio and A.J. Brown, D.K. Metcalf, Tyler Lockett, uh, Mike Evans, Chris Godwin, Amari Cooper, C.D. Lamb, and Adam Thielen and Justin Jefferson. Those are my top five. The order of them, I would put right now – probably Amari and CD at number five, just cause we're not a hundred percent. We don't know. Like we we're projecting that CD is going to have a big year this year because they're getting Dak back. It's going to be a second year in this, you know, and, and he was not underwhelming. It's just between Michael Gallup, Amari Cooper, and then the rotating you know, quarterback room that they had last year between starting with Dak and then Andy Dalton and then Ben DiNucci. And then, uh, they had the other guy from the, uh, from the uh, XFL, who came in, played a couple games, and then you went back to Andy Dalton when he came back. So I look at those, that wide receiver room, as, as having incredibly high upside. I just don't know if we know yet where that will kind of fall. Um, they could be top two, they could be lower than that, depending on, on what we see out of CD here. But based off of the wide receiver CD wasn't college, I think you have to include them in the top five. Uh after that, I would probably put, oh man, I'll put I'll put DK and, and Tyler Lockett fourth on that list. Um, I I want to put them higher because when you have a tandem that's Russell Wilson, DK and Tyler Lockett. I mean that, that's three incredibly talented guys. I think how Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf, complement one another as wide receivers uh, is, is as good as we have uh, you have one guy who I mean both of them can stretch the field but you have this athletic freak in DK Metcalf uh, and then this like incredibly skilled little smaller sized, but just really really talented wide receiver in Tyler Lockett a guy who can play bigger than what his size would tell you um, and, and then you got Russell Wilson throwing the football now the offensive line is honestly the biggest hindrance of this. But with those three guys, you know, you, you can't really go wrong. Uh, I would put Adam Thielen and just, Justin Jefferson third. Uh, I, I think that, that tandem, Adam Thielen is just perpetually underrated in the NFL, and I'm not sure why. Uh, he he's, he's done nothing but produce and catch the ball and, and play. Again, talking about a guy coming from a D3 school to now being one of the best wide receivers in the NFL – Easily one of the best route runners in the NFL. He's a much better athlete than people think. You know, people look at the white wide receiver and you think, you know, Wes Walker and Julian Edelman or Cole Beasley and the like little slot guys. And, and Adam Thielen's not that. Adam Thielen is a legitimate number one wide receiver uh, in, in the NFL. And then you pair that with this rookie sensation last year, Justin Jefferson, who puts up the best rookie wide receiver season we've ever seen. Uh, statistically anyway, and he's right up there with Randy Moss, and the two of them are kind of 1A, 1B for that, that ranking as far as production from a rookie wide receiver. Now, both of them had the advantage of Randy Moss was playing with Chris Carter on the, on the opposite side of the field, and Justin Jefferson is playing with Adam Thielen. But I, I think that wide receiver room, i put them third. And then you can kind of go back and forth with this. I would put Mike Evans and Chris Godwin second obviously they just won the super bowl so you have to give them their 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 kind of dude with that mike evans is always just about like and for both of these guys it's can they stay on the field you know if we're getting 15 games each out of those two guys they're just going to do especially with tom brady throwing the football it's just going to be production it's just going to be catches you know mike evans may only have two catches in a game but they could both easily be touchdowns because of how efficient he is in the red zone and you know, we'll, we'll get into more of this, especially as the season kind of continues and we we'll talk about from a fantasy perspective. Mike Evans is a guy you want to have on your team because he just scores touchdowns. You know, he's kind of like the antithesis of what Julio Jones has become, which is that like Julio isn't as much of a red zone threat as he once was, but he's going to eat up yards and catches throughout the rest of the game. Mike Evans is the guy who may only end up because defenses are always so worried about him that he may only end up getting three or four touchdown or three or four looks a game but there's a chance that both of them are going to be touchdowns because he's so good in the red zone uh and and there's a lot of fantasy value there and then chris godwin again when he's healthy he's a number one wide receiver kind of cloaked in a number two role and just again these those two guys is it's just production you know mike evans is going to score you a lot of touchdowns chris godwin's going to give you 140 yards when he's healthy that's just kind of how the breakup goes and and this last one, AJ Brown and Julio Jones, I, I would put right at the top. Um, I, again, I think the gap between all five of these are, is pretty small, with the exception of, I would say, Amari Cooper and C.D. Lamb are a little bit behind the top four. But Julio Jones, again, is just going to eat up yards. He's going to catch the ball. He's going to get yards after the catch. He's going to find ways to get open, especially in the middle of the field. And then A.J. Brown has become arguably a top three wide receiver in the NFL. And at this point, it's kind of hard to argue that. Um, Honorable mentions on this list, I, w- I would throw in Robert Woods and Cooper Cup. I-, I think again, they're they're kind of mirror images of each other, um, and-, and both of them have had issues, you know, staying healthy and staying on the field. But when they're both there, they're both great. Um, I- and I would throw in too, if we get a renaissance type season from AJ Green, having DeAndre Hopkins and AJ Green, like a healthy AJ Green, would be a ton of fun. Uh, for that Arizona team out in the desert because Kyler, we know is going to move around. We know how good Deandre Hopkins is uh, at this point. You know, he's a consensus top three wide receiver in the NFL and AJ green just hasn't been able to stay on the field. But when AJ green was at his peak, he was arguably a top five, top three wide receiver. I mean, he was so good coming out of Alabama. He was so ready for the NFL. He's got that long, he's got like the perfect wide receiver body. You know, he's long, fast, tall, incredible athlete uh he just hasn't been able to stay on the field and for but for kind of weird injuries you know shit like turf toe you know or like a tweaked hamstring you know it's never like oh he he tore his acl which sometimes little nagging injuries can sometimes be more indicative of how injury prone and and i hate saying that because sometimes injuries are just flukes and we've seen that in the nba with lebron and how little he's gotten injured over his career but he also invests a lot in his body you know I, i think with aj brown it's just a matter of, can he get himself in shape? And now with a chain of, change of scenery, first time not playing in Cincinnati, I think we're going to see a reinvigorated version of A.J. Green in Arizona. So I would throw them in there as kind of like a sneaky dark horse who could be one of the best wide receiver tandems, but that is predicated on whether or not A.J. Green will be able to stay healthy. So all in all, I, I, if I'm going to grade the trade, right, which if we're going to do this, we should do it a year from now rather than right now. But if we're grading the trade and assuming that Tennessee – shells out the contract to keep Julio in Tennessee. I would give it like a B plus, you know, like somewhere in that in that kind of range where you know I, it, we may not see the net results on the field uh, because they lost Arthur Smith, but that's not necessarily indicative of, of to whether or not the trade was a success or not. Um, the end production may not line up because of the defense, because of the change in OC. The, the overall production and the numbers we see and how it translates to wins may not be as apparent. But after losing Corey Davis and not really having a true number two there, you go out and you get Julio Jones, who still has wide receiver one talent, and you're going to pair that with AJ Brown. Um, and, and the thing is, is, two of them are, are kind of like, like AJ Brown looks like a young Julio Jones. You know, they're, they're built very similar. I think Julio is a little bit taller, but other than that, I mean, they're kind of mirror images of each other. And so now Julio, who's obviously slimmed down, he's not the physical DK Hulk looking wide receiver that he once was. He doesn't have to be that because you have AJ Brown on the other side and he can be a little more of that like smooth criminal, you know, just finding ways to get open, running great routes uh, and, and helping the Titans offense just continue to churn. And the other great thing is Julio hasn't really had a running back to the caliber of, Uh, Derrick Henry because most wide receivers haven't had that luxury. So defenses are going to have to account for both AJ green, Julio Jones and Derrick Henry. And I'm not quite sure how you do that, but we'll, we'll see how it ends up, you know, kind of turning out. And I think he has a chance to be a kind of reinvigorate some of his red zone numbers a little, I mean, you're still going to have AJ Brown, but the defense is going to have to pick, you know, do we want to stop Derrick Henry in the red zone? Do we want to stop, AJ Brown in the red zone or do we want to stop Julio Jones in the red zone I think at this point in his career Julio is probably going to be third on that list and especially without Johnny Smith who was one of the best red zone tight ends that we've had in the NFL over the last few seasons I think there's a really good chance that Julio kind of finds that gear and uh, from a fantasy perspective uh, you know Scotty and I were kind of texting about this the other day I I don't know how much you how much you fault him like how, how far does Julio drop he wasn't really a top four round pick anyway maybe like a fourth rounder is probably where i would i would peg him to go um i, I would say he's probably gonna be a wide receiver two option uh, i don't think you want him as your number one wide receiver on your fantasy roster but he very well you know could, could still be in in the mix there so uh, i'm excited to see what happens there with julio and um we're getting closer we're getting closer we hit the 100 day mark uh, we hit the 100 day mark until the nfl season starts uh, i believe we're at like 93 days now um training camps are going to start opening up soon and before we know it it's going to be september and we're going to have football like right in our laps and i can't wait i can't wait can never get enough football talk it's we said it all the time it's 24 7 365 kind of kind of a league and uh, with good reason because it is the staple of, of the american sports zeitgeist as it were so uh, all right quick break we'll come back and continue on with our sports gumbo The next part of our sports gumbo is going to be about the Logan Paul and Floyd Mayweather fight on Sunday night. Um, I don't want to go too much into this because I I don't know how much it's really worth talking about because the fight itself kind of sucked. It was like every other Floyd Mayweather fight we've had in the last decade. You know, we always get excited. We always hope, you know, back when he was really competitive, people were watching because they wanted to see Floyd get knocked out. Obviously, he's never lost a, a, a fight. Um, but all in all, it, it really wasn't that entertaining, you know, there were moments like in the fourth round, it looked like Floyd is really trying to, to make, make something land, maybe try to, to knock out Logan. Um, the size difference was massive. Uh, you know, there was a good, I think what, five and a half inch difference. Floyd's five, eight Logan Paul, six, one and a half. Uh, There was a significant weight difference between the two. The reach actually wasn't that bad. Uh, Logan only ended up having like an inch and a half advantage on the reach. But what I said going into it was there's, there's no way that Logan's going to be able to touch him. There's, there's no way that Logan Paul is going to be able to even lay a punch on Floyd. And and the only way he really was able to was when they would kind of tie up. And that was, the, the, the danger of that for Logan was that when they would get tight, when they would tie up and Logan would kind of lean all of his weight onto Floyd to try to tire him out, and whatnot. Um, that was the only way that Floyd could reach Logan. So every time he would tie him up to try to hit him, he was also getting subject to a lot of hits. And if you looked at the, the, the numbers, I mean, Floyd only la- only threw I think 14 jabs in the entire fight, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, but the percentages between the two, where Logan Paul, I think, was like 12% on his, on his jabs landed, and it was like 14% of his power punches landed, and he's throwing like a couple hundred in the, in the eight rounds. Floyd's throwing a fraction of them, but landing on a, such a significantly higher number to the point where it's like Floyd may have only thrown like 25- uh, power punches, but almost all of them, he almost had the same amount as Logan did, even though Logan threw like 150. So uh, it, it wasn't the most entertaining fight in the world. You have to give credit to Logan Paul in this because to get into the ring with a guy like Floyd Mayweather, even though it felt a little WWE ish, even though it felt a little bit like they're selling tickets, you have to give the dude credit. I mean, to sack up get into the ring with a Hall of Famer, pound for pound, one of the greatest to ever do it. Guy's 50-0 and in his career. We've seen him knock out Conor McGregor. We've seen him beat Pacquiao. We've seen him beat Canelo Alvarez. We've seen him beat so many guys time after time. And for Logan to, as not a boxer, as a guy who only had one professional fight in his career that he lost to another YouTuber, to actually get in the ring in the last eight rounds with Floyd Mayweather, even though the size difference was as apparent as it was. um, You you have to give a lot of credit to the guy, but you have to be really unlikable for me and for most of the world to be pulling for Floyd Mayweather over Logan Paul. I mean, Floyd Mayweather is a pretty gross human being, just objectively. Like, he's not a super likable guy. Uh, Logan is just about as equally as unlikable. And yet, this this fight was massive. And there were people all over the world tuning in. They made millions and millions of dollars over this thing. And it it was a question with my roommate as we were watching it you know, is this this the new trend? Is this what we're going to see more and more? And I think what I've come to realize is that this is the future of boxing. This is the future of all of boxing. Um, There's still going to be the Tyson Fury and Deontay Wilder or Tyson Fury, Anthony Joshua. Like Those fights are still going to happen, and they're still going to do huge. But this whole concept of celebrities through YouTube, through TikTok, through social media, getting into the ring with... Former athletes, we saw Jake Paul knock out Nate Robinson a couple months ago um, and, and, like, almost knock his shoes off of him. He punched him so hard. So it's not – I don't know. It, it's entertainment, right? Like, that's – at the end of the day, what this is is it's entertainment. It's not good boxing. It's not good fighting. But there's a great line – about boxing and why boxing will forever be the I believe Max Kellerman actually said this um, why boxing will always be the most popular sport in the world and he said if you're walking down the street in New York City and there's a basketball court and this guy's playing pickup and there's some other kids playing baseball on on a baseball field in the park uh, you know you may walk by and kind of look at it and 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 take a look but you're not going to stop your day and, and go and watch In a boxing match, if you are walking down the street and two guys get into a fight, you're stopping what you're doing to watch the fight. And so what ends up making the difference and why basketball and baseball might end up being more popular is who's playing the game. You know, If it's LeBron James playing in a pickup game in New York or like the old footage at Rutgers Park of Kobe showing up and going up against streetball players, you're going to stop and watch. I mean, you're going to get a massive crowd around it. But in just the actual sport itself, everybody wants to stop what they're doing to watch a fight. Everybody. So I think that's kind of the energy that we're getting here, which is that we're going to have more and more of the Logan Pauls, the Jake Pauls, you know, the Nate Robinsons, Chad Johnson fought on this card. He was the opening fight in this card. And, the thing that hasn't been talked about because everyone talked about the Floyd fight and the the Logan Paul fight was that there were two legitimate boxing matches leading up to there were four fights. Of, so you had the Chad Johnson fight first and then you had two legitimate boxing matches that went on in the second and third fights before the main event. I think we're going to start seeing more of that where it's like we're going to bring in a couple of world champions to come in and fight, you know, uh, before whatever the big celebrity ticket is. And the celebrity ticket is just going to get people to kind of buy in to watch the fight. The problem was, is anyone who was trying to stream the fight on Showtime on the app or on their website, you couldn't watch any of the fucking prelims. All of them didn't work because the site crashed. You literally couldn't stream the fight unless you were watching it like off of your cable package. Like there was no way to watch those undercards unless you were illegally streaming it, which is what, We inevitably had to do because until it was like right before the Logan Paul and Floyd fight, once they were getting ready, it seemed like all of a sudden, boom, the stream worked and we were, we were good to go to watch it. But the other, the undercard you couldn't watch because the, the site itself crashed. So they need to hammer out some of those details. They need to fix some of that shit. But I think this is going to be a trend. I think we're going to start to see more and more guys who are like, hey, we're going to find a way to mix both celebrity boxing as our main card, whatever's going to actually sell the $50 pay-per-view. And then we're going to throw in a couple of actually high-quality boxing matches in front of it, which I don't hate. I mean, I I think anyone who watched that fight would walk away from it and go, eh, wasn't really worth 50 bucks, if I'm being honest. (laughs) You know, because at the end of the day, it was the same thing as every Floyd fight that's ever been, which is Floyd's the best tactician, is the best defensive fighter we've ever seen in boxing. He's almost impossible to hit. And all of his fights are boring because once you got past like 2008, he wasn't knocking guys out anymore. He was just so good at not getting hit. Um, And, and you know, again, I, I, I don't know how much more you can say about the fight itself other than it just kind of sucked. You know, it was just a classic thing, but it was entertainment. You know, I, I like the kind of unique um, broadcasting style, you know, where you're bringing in like, you know, Snoop Dogg did the Jake Paul and, and Floyd, uh, not Floyd, Nate Robinson fight. You know, they're going to bring in different guys are going to come in and spice up the broadcast, which I really enjoyed. Um, but yeah, we'll 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 see how this kind of continues. All in all, you do have to kind of give some credit to Logan Paul. As much as that kind of pains, I think, everyone. <laughs> no one wants to give Logan Paul credit, and and I get that. Um, but, you know, credit where credit's due, man. The guy got into the ring with one of the greatest to ever do it, and that's, that's no easy feat. Taking a drastic change uh, on this next topic, um, the Women's College World Series has been going on, I guess, for what? The last week with the actual women's college world series you had the super regionals and the regionals and all that beforehand um if you haven't been paying attention to this uh you gotta you gotta get your brain checked a little because holy shit it has been absolutely electric be like insanely electric this entire this entire event um i'm a little biased as, as many of you know, who listen to this podcast, I am a JMU alum, and the JMU women's softball team made arguably the greatest run of any Cinderella that, we, that the women's college world series that all of college softball has ever seen. Uh, as an unseeded team, they have beaten the number nine ranked Missouri Tigers, uh, or sorry, number nine ranked Tennessee Vols, number eight ranked Missouri Tigers, beat the Vols once, beat the... Missouri twice then they went on to beat number one in the country and absolute juggernaut Oklahoma then they beat Oklahoma State to start off the College World Series two wins against the number one and number five team in the country in Oklahoma and Oklahoma State to get themselves to the national semifinals basically the final four and it's double elimination bracket so until you get to the finals, which is just a best of three series that wiped the the slate clean. JMU was 2-0 and in the Women's College World Series, which is the final eight teams. Beat Oklahoma. Beat Oklahoma State. Secure their spot in the final four. And then Oklahoma goes on this incredible stretch of games and ends up beating JMU twice uh, and ultimately knocking out the Dukes. But what an unbelievable run, um, Odyssey Alexander, who has become the the face of the tournament. Honestly, the entire women's college world series and this Oklahoma team. To give you some perspective, losing to JMU would have been like if the Anthony Davis Kentucky team that like almost went complete, uh, undefeated, um, and they went on to win the national championship that year, as well as uh, what was the other incredible, the Willie Collie Stein. Year for Oklahoma. I forget who was all on that team. I think it was like the Devin Booker year, and they were like thirty and 0 They went undefeated almost the whole season. It would have been like if one of those teams had lost to, you know, a mid-major in the second round or third round of the NCAA tournament. It it, it was just so unprob improbable what they did, and they were such a gritty team, and they would just get these timely home runs and these timely hits, but. To beat Oklahoma once is a tall task, and JMU is one of only three teams to do that. They held them to three runs in that first game, which is the lowest run total they had had all season because every single player in their starting lineup for Oklahoma hits over 300. Every single player in the starting nine can go yard at any time. They are an absolute juggernaut of a team, like one of the best Teams statistically in the history of college softball and JMU, as a plucky mid major, they never wanted to be called a Cinderella story, but that is kind of what they were. I mean, in their minds, they belong there. Uh, And and JMU went 34 and one in the regular season, and then they lose a game to uh, Missouri in a best of three, and then they end up dropping two more. So JMU ends up finishing the season, I believe. At like forty-two and four, and what was just an incredible, incredible run for a mid-major school and JMU, especially as someone who's been there, you know, I know how much gets invested in athletics there. You know, when when I was there, we had College Game Day come twice, we won a football national championship, and, and this is probably even more impressive: we won the women's uh, lacrosse national championship. You know, And because JMU plays in the FCS, a lot of places don't want to give us the credit. And I know I said us, but I, can, I feel like I can actually say that because I went there. JMU doesn't get the credit that it deserves as a D1 school because it's in the FCS. So then the football championships kind of get downplayed. Or if they win a national championship in a sport like lacrosse, or they won in field hockey in the 90s, or damn near almost went on to win the Women's College World Series this year, People look at it as like, oh, well, did they win the D2 championship? It's like, no, they are a legitimate D1 program. They're great women's basketball program. The men's basketball program's on the way up. They're always competitive nationally. The, the women's golf team made a great run in the postseason this year, uh, especially for women's sports. JMU excels and is competitive with all of the big boys. And if they can ever get a point, I, I would expect JMU to, to make a leap up to FBS football at some point. I know fans of JMU are always looking at the American as like, hey, hey, American right here, boom, be perfect. And it, it would be, you know, it's right in the wheelhouse location-wise. They can be competitive in every sport in the American, um, not just football. But I also think football would come in, they would probably be on the, on the not bottom feeder side, but if you're going to give JMU 85 scholarships instead of the, the 60 that they get at the FCS level, they could absolutely field a, a very competitive team, especially with the transfer portal now and, and kind of getting the, the ugly misnomer of being an FCS school. Like that's some, so, somehow a bad thing. Uh, transfers used to like to come down to the FCS because you could play right away. Cause it was a different level of football. You didn't have to wait the one year, but now that anyone can transfer one time, it's going to hurt transfers uh, for JMU. You know, this is a, a school that has consistently gotten guys from UVA and Ohio state and UCF and like really, really good football programs. And now you look at the transfers they added this year and the best school that they picked someone up from was army and Army's a good program. Jeff Munkin does an incredible job with the black Knights, but that, this transfer rule is going to hurt the FCS when it comes to guys who could be a D one caliber, a power five caliber player, but they didn't want to wait. They didn't want to wait another year. So they would go to JMU and, and JMU's not going to get those guys anymore if they stay at the FCS. So moments like this, the exposure, um, you know, JMU was trending. JMU was one of the best, you know, Odyssey Alexander was trending. You know, we had we saw the the Seattle Mariners had a similar play to the game winner or the almost game winner that they had against Oklahoma state when odyssey Alexander picks up the bunt on a squeeze dives out at the runner coming home to third and, and, and tags her out. There was a similar play that happened in the Seattle Mariners game and Seattle gave odyssey a shout out and JMU softball a shout out because this team and this story captivated the, the world. So, The future's looking bright in Harrisonburg as, as it has been for a long time, but it just seems like every couple, every year there's another team at JMU that's kind of doing something like this. That's putting themselves on the map. Um, Other aspects of the women's college world series. um, Just it, again, the sport is electric. If you haven't watched it, the games go by quick. Uh, It's quick action, the smaller fields. These girls are throwing underhand at like 70 miles an hour, which, if you equate that to what it would be like on a baseball field because of the extra size and and the distance between the pitchers, man and home plate, it'd be like facing a 96, 97 mile an hour fastball. So the reaction time um, it it, it is just, it's an incredible sport. And we saw Montana Fouts, who's a pitcher for Alabama through a perfect game. First perfect game in like 18 years or 20 something years at the, uh, at the women's college world series. And then they come out, and they dropped two in a row to Florida State. So both Alabama and JMU in the driver's seat, they just need to win one more game. Both lost two, and now we have a national championship that will be kicking off tonight on Tuesday and Wednesday night uh, between Florida State and Oklahoma. And my, my money would be on Oklahoma because, again, Oklahoma's a juggernaut, and the way that they came back to beat JMU, uh, this, this team's going to be a really tough out. They're going to be an incredibly, incredibly tough out. Staying in the college sector here quickly before we get on to the last part of our sports gumbo, which will be the NBA playoffs. um, Nick Saban got an extension. Uh, He signed an extension that will keep him in Tuscaloosa into the 2028 season through the 2028 season. So seven years. And we were talking about this on the radio show yesterday. How long would you expect Nick Saban to actually stay there. How long do you expect Nick Saban to actually be the head coach at Alabama now that we know that there might be an end, uh, you know, a light at the end of that tunnel? My expectation would be that he's going to finish out this contract. That would put him to, I think, 77 years old. Uh, which would be about the time that you would expect an all-time great like that to retire. We don't see a whole lot of college football coaches coaching into their seventies, but the all-time greats do tend to hang around until they're almost eighty years old. Whether it's Joe Paw, whether it's Bobby Bowden, um, you know, Bear Bryant, like you can look through. But Bear Bryant historically, um, there's there's a story about when he retired. You know, he always said like, well, "I like if I don't have football, I'm, I'm like literally gonna die." <laughs> And I think it was like a month after he retired, he ended up passing away. Um, Pretty legendary story from the bear, but we will see. I mean, we're starting to see this, this changing of the tides, you know, we're we're seeing Roy Williams and coach K step down. Uh, We see guys like Urban Meyer step down and then move to the NFL. Um, You know, Bob Stoops, Les Miles for important reasons is no longer the head coach. at uh, at Kansas, but we're seeing this era of college football coaches starting to kind of fade away for these young stars, whether it's Dabo, whether it's Ryan day, we're seeing more and more of that happen in college sports. And I think Saban is pretty unique. I mean, again, we talked about this on, on the pod last week with Scotty about how coach K is such a unique figure. You know, coach K is, is not just, an all-time great. He's not just a Hall of Famer. He is arguably the greatest college basketball coach of all time, probably second behind John Wooden. But Nick Saban is the greatest college football coach of all time. And we can bring up and we can have debates about Bear Bryant. We can have debates about uh, other all-time great coaches. But it's hard to to argue the greatness of Nick Saban. And if he sticks around for seven years, I would expect not only will he stay for the full seven years, but that they will continually be competitive because when Nick Saban's there, you're going to win football games and eventually there's a tail off. And I would say maybe in those last couple of years, there might be a bit of a drop off, especially with how much the college landscape is changing. But if there's anybody who's actually going to do it, I I would not bet against Nick Saban. You know, it's kind of the same thing with LeBron did it with MJ. You do it with these all time greats, these, these goats, where it's like, I'm not going to bet against you until I see it for myself. It's the same thing. I, I learned this lesson the hard way in the Super Bowl this last year. You know, I didn't think Tom Brady had it. I, not that I didn't think Tom Brady would be, would be good. I just didn't think it would be enough to beat the Chiefs. And it turns out that it was. And it, look, it took the Chiefs not having either of the starting tackles. But you don't bet against the, the, the greatest until they're done. And Nick Saban's the greatest. So at some point, will there be a bit of a drop-off? Yes, Probably. Statistically speaking, it's going to happen at some point. But seven years at 77, I mean, that dude is so sharp and and he's still so willing to adapt. Uh, I just – I see – I have a hard time thinking that Nick Saban won't still be resonating with young kids, his success, his track record with getting guys to the NFL, that that still won't resonate with young recruits, even when he's 75, 76, and then 77. All right, last ingredient here of our sports gumbo on the read option. Um, NBA playoffs are in full swing, like full-blown every night, every day, another set of NBA playoff games. And it's almost like the mini NCAA tournament, but it's stretched out longer where it's like you have the first two days of the NCAA tournament where it's just insanity – you know, you're going in and it's like, oh, my God, there's so many games. It's like almost overwhelming. And you have four TV set up and you're watching them all. This is similar to that in that the first two rounds, you you get action every single night. And then obviously as it kind of, you know, progresses, you know, we'll get more game, We'll get less games and we'll have more time in between each of the matchups. But the first two rounds of the NBA playoffs, uh, the first round can kind of be a dud sometimes. This round, though this this playoffs ha- have been great. Um, you know, the first round were all game five or less, with the exception of the Clippers and Dallas series, which all credit to the Clippers for coming back on that. Uh, but since we last talked, a lot has changed because Scotty and I were talking about Phoenix and LA, which actually that game that series did go six. So I, I am I'm misspoke there. Um, but that that's like the main headline since we last potted. Which was LeBron is out of the playoffs. First time in his career, he's lost in the first round, um, and the Phoenix Suns look really good. Look really good. They won their first, their second round matchup game one last night against Denver. Uh, Denver also closed out Portland and uh, and Dame, which you know Terry Stotts is out. We'll see if they make some other changes to that organization, and we'll see if if CJ McCollum. Or, or Robert Covington, or I doubt it, but maybe even Dame end up getting moved. Uh, I would be shocked just by how much Damian Lillard means to that organization and just the way that Dame is wired. You know, we talked about that on, on Thursday's show. I, I'd be shocked if if we don't see Damian Lillard back with the Portland Trailblazers next year. But you never know. You know, things, things happen. You, Priscilla always says this, you know, you're always just three – three months away from the next disgruntled superstar. Right. And I don't think Dame is cut of that, of that same cloth where he's going to force his way out of Portland, but you know, you never know. He's also due, I want to say like $54 million next year. Um, So finding a trade partner for him is tough because you need to send him to a place that has the cap space to be able to, you know, take that on. Um, Hypothetically, it would be really fun to see him in Philly. You know, if there was some sort of Ben Simmons, uh, trade for for Damian lillard or like a tobias harris for cj McCollum kind of trade that that would be a lot of fun um but i think if you are the portland you know trailblazers there's there's, there's no incentive to get rid of Damian lillard like why, why would you why would you do that this for everything he means to that organization the amount that they cut him in on decision making uh, it, it just it doesn't really make much sense for them to go that route um so portland's out denver moves on LeBron's out, the Lakers are out, and the Phoenix Suns and Chris Paul are are on their way and that game last night between Phoenix and Denver was incredible for the first 3 quarters. And then Brooklyn went on like a 37 to 12 run and it just was never it was never close after that. I think that started at the tail end of the third quarter and and but before then it, it was back and forth. I mean, Denver looked like they were in control. I think this is going to be a really fun series. I think Denver pushes it to at least 6 games. But I think Phoenix right now – and the thing that was really shocking about last night's game was how well DeAndre Ayton played against Jokic, which, look, Jokic is going to get his numbers. But if DeAndre Ayton can be a force offensively and use his size and athleticism to his advantage – you know, he's 6'11", foot, kind of in that ballpark. Uh, He's definitely far – by far the superior athlete compared to Jokic. But DeAndre Ayton definitely has – uh, some learning to do. And you're talking about one of the most cerebral basketball players in the world in Nikolai Jokic. So I think what we'll end up seeing out of Phoenix and Denver is a bit of a knockdown, drag out kind of fight. You know, I, I think game two, if Phoenix can go up 2-0, well, I think the series is, is over. I think it'll still go probably six games. Um, obviously, you have the altitude thing. Going from Phoenix than to Denver, and Denver will be more accustomed to that. And we'll have a game where Michael Porter Jr. will go off for like 30. We'll have a game where Jokic is, scores 25 with 13 assists and 14 rebounds. Like that's going to happen in this series. But the same issue that we saw, that we thought we were going to see with Portland and Denver was that who is guarding. Damian Lillard. And Campazzo did a really good job against Dame with the exception of that 55-point performance in double overtime which was an all-time performance in the playoffs in recent memory. I don't know how Denver is going to stop both Devin Booker and Chris Paul because it's not just one guy now. And and yes, CJ McCollum's there, but CJ McCollum was fighting through injury that entire series. So you got a red-hot Devin Booker who is playing as good of basketball as I've ever seen him play. Chris Paul, who he, – he's almost like a souped-up Jason Kidd. Remember when Jason Kidd was on De- uh, Dallas, and I think it was the 2011 finals team with Jason Terry and Dirk, and it was Jason Kidd like well past his prime, but he was just managing the game without making a single mistake the entire time, and then he hit a couple of clutch threes – He'd make a couple vintage Chris uh, uh, Jason Kidd plays, and that was so important to that team. And I look at Phoenix and I see Chris Paul doing that exact same thing, but at an even higher level than what Jason Kidd was up to. Now, the problem for all of these teams left in the postseason is that we're re- we're finally realizing what a freaking buzzsaw the Brooklyn Nets are because Brooklyn also played last night. They dismantled Milwaukee in Game One, and they went out and did it again. Last night, I mean that game was not even close. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets, and that's keep in mind without James Harden, because James Harden goes down one, uh, goes down in game one, and everyone's like, "All oh, right, well maybe the door is open here. Maybe, maybe the door is now open for Brooklyn to drop a couple games, or for this series to to go a little more one sided than what we initially thought." Um, are a little less one-sided than we initially thought my apologies uh, and yet even without James Harden Bro- Brooklyn has come out and just flat out dominated I mean they won last night 125 to 86 and, and what we've seen out of Blake Griffin the defense Blake Griffin's been playing on Giannis is incredible and we're seeing him go up and skying for dunks. Not quite like he used to, but, you know, Blake still has. He posterized Giannis. I think it was Giannis. It was Giannis or, or Middleton or, or Brooke Lopez. It was someone – I don't remember exactly who. But what we're seeing out of this Brooklyn team is really scary. It's really scary for the rest of the NBA. And for a postseason that we thought was going to seem pretty evenly matched, no, you know, who's going to end up winning this thing, it really looks like it's now Brooklyn's to lose. Um, if Milwaukee – can't really hang with Brooklyn. I don't know who can. I I really don't. I I don't think there's another team in the East can that can. I, 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 you know, I mean, I'm a Sixers fan. I love Philly. I love Embiid, but I look at them and I go, especially after how they looked in in that first game against Atlanta, you know, yeah, the the Sixers are going to be a better defensive team than Milwaukee, but Milwaukee still has one of the best on guard on ball defenders in all of the NBA. In uh, Drew Holiday, and then you have Giannis, defensive player of the year, just a couple years ago. He can't slow down Durant, so I don't know what anyone else can do. I mean, yeah, having Embiid there will help protect the paint a little bit because Kyrie, though, Kyrie has proven in the past he's been able to to score against Embiid in the paint, but I don't know how this ends up going. I I really don't, And, and I, I Want to hold out hope that this is going to remain competitive. But I don't see a team in the West that can beat Brooklyn. I, lo- I love Phoenix. I like Utah. I don't think either of them can hang with the Brooklyn Nets. And again, they are doing this without James Harden. James Harden has played 43 seconds in this series. He got hurt 43 seconds in the game on Saturday. And they won. They won, ended up winning only by eight. But for the last 10 minutes of the game, it was backups in for Brooklyn. And they still managed to win by eight points. And then they come out and they win by 39. 39 points. That is terrifying for the rest of the NBA. And I would expect Milwaukee takes game three, or at least that game will be really, really competitive. But it's not like Brooklyn has this massive home court advantage. They just can score at will. And when Blake's playing great defense, he's an agitator. He's getting under guys' skins, and he's just he's, – he's basically pulling a Draymond from a couple of years ago, just playing really good defense, not shooting a whole lot. When he gets an open three, because he's a lot of times left completely open, he's been burying them. I don't know what to expect for the rest of this series because the first two games have been pretty jaw-dropping in, in favor of Brooklyn, especially without James Harden. If James Harden comes back, I mean, this series is a wrap. I I was not expecting Milwaukee after going up to – after sweeping the heat in the first round to go down 2-0. And look, maybe just the time away really hurt them, but they need – they absolutely need to get their shit together because right now Giannis – Giannis isn't doing much. And a lot of that has to go to Blake Griffin. But Giannis is settling for a lot of these, like – Turner, like back down, Blake get to about 10 feet and then hit like a fadeaway jumper. And like, look, he can shoot that at about 45%. But, you know, Giannis had only, Giannis had 18 points against a bad defensive team in Brooklyn. They have to be better than that. They have to be. Eight, 18 points, four assists, 11 rebounds. And it was a minus 22. Chris Middleton, since hitting that game winner, has been in game one against Milwaukee, has basically been com- completely non-existent. For the rest of this playoffs i mean he had 17 points last night was on minus 30 on the court you can't have that if you're milwaukee you need to be better than that and three of eight is not a terrible shooting percentage but it's not good enough to beat the the the, the nets it's just not i mean brooklyn is terrifying right now absolutely terrifying um Tonight, we're going to see Utah take on the Clippers, and we'll see game two of Philly and Atlanta. And I'll start with the Clippers because the Clippers look dead in the water. Uh, it really did not seem like the Clippers had much of a chance in this series. It didn't really seem like the Clippers uh, would even come back and, and beat Dallas. And and Dallas needs to figure out what they're going to be doing here with Porzingis moving forward. Um Porzingis is a liability for them, and clearly the, the marriage between him and Luca is not what they were hoping it to be. Luca puts up 46, 46 points, and he's already top 20 all-time in 40-point games in the playoffs, and he's only been in the playoffs two years. Uh, Luca is, I feel as confident as I've ever felt about Luca being the, the guy who's going to get the torch for the, the long term in the future of the NBA because... He was so good in that series, but it, it turned into Luca versus the Clippers. And the second that Kawhi said, All right, let's let's check it up, Kawhi got the better of him because his best teammate is Paul George. And they seem to have kind of figured out their roles. I, I think the Clippers have a legitimate chance to make it out of the Western Conference. Now we'll see how they do against the Jazz, who you know, Utah has been really incredible all year since dropping game 1 they won 4 straight against memphis and worked their way into round 2 with with pretty pretty much ease pretty pretty effortlessly found their way into round 2 so i'm not i'm not going to sit here and say that look the clippers are now the favorite to get out of the west cuz i still think it's phoenix and even still they have a pretty tough challenge getting over utah who has been universally considered the the best team in the nba all season um based off of what we've seen on the court because brooklyn has had a, you know hasn't really had the big three together for most of the season so you kind of have to give that mantle to utah but utah is susceptible and when you have two really really good wings in Kawhi leonard and paul george it's going to be tough to defend that um I, I, and the other thing, too, is both of these teams, number one and number two, in three-point shooting on the season. So we're going to see a lot of three-pointers chalked up. We are gonna see a lot of deep threes. And it's going to be who kind of can stay hot unless Donovan Mitchell has one of those crazy 50-point games. But he's going to get checked by Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. So I, I don't see Donovan Mitchell going toe-to-toe like he did last year against Jamal Murray where it's like 50 points for Jamal and 50 points for Donovan Mitchell. I don't think we're going to see that. But I do think what we're going to end up seeing is uh, a lot of three-point shots going up, and the, whatever team can stay hot for the longest is going to end up winning this series. And, and game one tonight should be really interesting. Um, the, the last part of the NBA playoffs that I want to touch on here as we wrap up the pod, Philly got um, Philly got a little bit embarrassed on on Sunday afternoon going up against the – Atlanta Hawks and I thought going into this matchup that there was a chance that the Hawks could steal a game or two especially if Embiid wasn't playing well it turns out Embiid did play and I'll be honest Embiid didn't look great I mean look Embiid had 39 points he also went 14 to 15 from the stripe but the way he was moving was a bit concerning if you are a Sixers fan now there was a lot of questionable coaching decisions by doc rivers right why was the bench playing as much as it was why is danny green the one checking trey young who had a 25 point first half i still think the sixers should be the favorite to to win this series especially with how well they played in the second half and and taking what was a 30 point lead from atlanta in the first half and getting it all the way down to four and the hawks only end up winning 128 to 124 I think what we'll see moving forward is a lot of Ben Simmons on Trey Young, a lot of Matisse Thibel on Trey Young. And other than that, if the Sixers aren't able to really find a way to slow down Trey Young by putting one of those two guys on it, which is tough because of the way that the officials the, the way the officials were calling Trey Young was like Trey Young is Steph Curry, you know, and, and Ben Simmons has so much size. You know, Hubie Brown or Jeff Van Gundy said this on one of the broadcasts size is punished in the NBA. If you are a bigger defender defending a smaller player, smaller players is going to get the benefit of the doubt 10 times out of 10. And how NBA officiating can be so horrifically bad sometimes still like drops my jaw like base salary for NBA referees is like one hundred and eighty thousand dollars a year. And it can get up to five hundred thousand, depending on seniority and how long they've been around. So these guys are incredibly well compensated, and yet they can get a challenge. You know, Doc Rivers challenged one of their calls, and it was a Matisse Thybul was defending Trey Young. Trey Young absolutely chicken winged him to get space. Matisse is in the air and does not make any contact with Trey Young. There was about fifteen camera angles showing you that this was not a foul. If it was a foul on anybody, it was a foul on Trey Young. And they still got the call wrong because they can find ways to manipulate it because officiating is always going to be subjective. And I'm not someone who likes to blame the referees. I used to, when I was younger, I, I used to say that I was fixed and blah, blah, blah. You know, classic irrational Philly fan. I don't believe that. I just believe that there's so much subjectivity in officiating that, there can be emphasis brought down from the league office saying like, hey, you guys need to really make sure we, we tighten up on this on this call. you know, on three pointers, call less fouls than three pointers, right? And they will do that accordingly. But if it's Ben Simmons guarding or Ormatiisse thibel guarding Trey Young, Trey Young is going to get the benefit of the doubt on almost every single call, which puts the sixers in a really, really tough spot. because if Ben Simmons comes out guarding Trey Young and he picks up two fouls in the first four minutes of the game, then that puts the Sixers at a really disadvantage, uh, a very unfortunate and, and disadvantageous, disadvantageous. I work through it. There we go. <laughs> um, situation because how else are they supposed to stop them when Trey Young's getting every single call? Like he's cons- like, is Trey Young now one of the best players in the NBA? Like that's ridiculous. Now, Atlanta also made 23s in this game. They went 20 of 47. They were shooting like 80% from three in the first half. That's not going to continue to happen. There's no way that they're going to stay on that trajectory. And when the Sixers want to play lockdown clamp defense, they can play it. So it's just a matter of limit the first half. You know, they can't have another crazy first half like they had. And I think the Sixers come out and win game two and and it'll go right back to being a good series. But uh, the way that that started was, was torturous. If you're a Philly sports fan, it was absolutely brutal. And if Embiid, you know, there, you can tell when Embiid's at hundred percent because he does reckless shit, right? He dives into the stands. He's, you know, but Embiid still played the most minutes of anybody on the Sixers team, you know, 39 points, 12, 21, 38 minutes. You know, Simmons played the second most minutes at 37, but, they need more out of Ben. They need more out of Tobias Harris. They need, I mean, they've gotten 30 and 21 in back-to-back games from Seth Curry. So I'm not sure how much more you can ask out of Seth Curry. But there was also just way too many minutes played by the bench. I mean, every single person on the Sixers bench was a minus, had a minus plus minus on, on the day. I mean, George Hill only played 11 minutes and was a minus 17. Dwight Howard played eight minutes and was a minus 15. You know, we can't have that that many minutes being thrown out there uh, from our bench. It's, it's just too much. And when, when you look at the Sixer starters, they all finished at a net positive. You know, Seth Curry was a plus 16. Embiid was a plus 13. Tobias Harris is a plus 9. Ben Simmons a plus 4. So the starters are effective. The starters are going to continue to be effective. Um and, again, the way that that second half kind of un- unraveled for, for the Sixers is encouraging. But if you're a Sixers fan, the hope has to be that that first round, that first half of game one was an anomaly and that they kind of have their shit together since then. Um, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. That game's tonight, 730. And uh, the other game, Utah and Clippers, is at 10, both on TNT. Uh, it should be fun. Should be a lot of fun. So uh, enjoy the rest of the week in sports. Again, we got a bunch more playoff games to get to uh, as the week will progress. I think we're going to get to the point we have about two every single night, at least one. Um, We have the Women's College World Series kicking off tonight. Uh, We have some uh, some more golf getting ready as the U.S. Open looms closer. Uh, And and we'll see. We'll see where things go. Um, We'll be back on Friday of a pod hopefully with Vito and Scotty at least one of the two um got some interviews coming up down the pipeline as well so thank everybody for listening uh rate review subscribe it really does help us out a lot if you can if you can kind of do one of those things um but this has been it's been a ton of fun so uh we'll be back a little bit later on on the read option I hope everybody has a wonderful rest of your week and we will talk to you all then take it easy everybody